and welcome to the Strange Brew podcast. My name is Jason Barnard and for those that follow the Strange Brew, you may recall about six years ago um, I spoke to Patrick Campbell-Lines of the wonderful uh, Nirvana, but that was for a written interview and and this time around I wanted to do a a podcast with Patrick uh, for two reasons, uh, one of which there's a couple of marvellous reissues on the esoteric label of uh, uh, two Nirvana albums from the early 70s, Local Anesthetic and Songs of Love and Praise. And also, I'd like to close with um, a new track from Patrick's uh, forthcoming solo album as well. So um, the first song I played today actually was a remake of Pentecost Hotel. And that's um, a song from one of those reissues, Songs of uh, Love and Praise. Patrick, welcome to the show. Oh, nice to be here with you. 
Uh, it's honestly, it's a real pleasure. Pantycost Cost Hotel, the 1971 release, was uh, released again as a single, and I think that actually featured a children's choir this time. Yes, I mean the one I'm sure that um, most of the Nirvana fans uh, initially heard was the one on Island Records, which was our like one of our singles with Rainbow Chaser and Tiny Goddess and Stones, which was full orchestra produced by Jimmy Miller and Chris Blackwell and some really top-class session musicians on the rhythm section. I think it was about a 40-piece orchestra. On, well, it was about 20 strings on there, cellos, violas. Chris Blackwell had given us a kind of an unlimited freedom in the studio. He just said, you know, take as much time as you want you to record, whatever you want. Book, if you want a tuba, if you want a harp, if you want two harps, do it. Because we had decided at that point that we were going to be two rather than the original five-piece that we started out with. And he said, well, if you're not going to have a group, how are you going to put it together? And we said, well, we'll use an orchestra. So we took him at his word, and uh, true to his word, he paid for all our recording sessions, and uh, tell the original would have been a typical track that cost a lot of money by today's standards. A couple of years later, when Alex and I decided to have a, a breathing space, I had uh, some production contract with uh, Philips Records at March. Again, uh, as a producer, they gave me some freedom to um, Philips Studio. Marble Arch was a lovely studio as well. And I was learning a bit about production myself. I'd learned a bit from Ireland days. And a man called John Franz, who's no no longer with us, was working with Scott Walker at the time. And I was kind of um, hanging out with him and watching what he was doing in the studio and things. So it was a really nice time. But I wanted specifically to redo Pentecost Hotel again, more up-tempo. I just had this thing about uh, what we did with Nirvana was very baroque and strict tempo, quite a heavy rhythm. No, you couldn't dance it, that's for sure, in any shape or form. But I wanted to just uh, give it a little bit of a kick, and so I did this kind of jazzy version with a couple of horns and um, the kids' choir. And uh, that's the version you're talking about. I've been reading that this is the first time that these uh, albums have been um, remastered and, and sort of reissued on CD, is that correct? Yes, our original albums are on Island Universal, and this was on um, Phillips at the time, and uh, they were for a little while they were on Mercury, I think, but they've never had an official, I suppose, do they call it digital remix release or something? And um, it was an interesting period for me because I needed uh, I needed to just be in a different place doing uh, a different thing with music, you know, because I'd spent four years with Alex Peropolis on the island days, and um, every day we were writing, and then we were traveling, promoting, and in Europe we did a bunch of shows a couple of you know, times. We were, you know, deeply in it, so it was very good to fly in a different space for a while. Absolutely. We'll talk in more detail later in the show about, about those two records as well, so excellent. I'd like to take you back, Patrick, to um, a cult classic now, a track um, badged on the title Hat and Tie and the uh, song Finding It Rough. You, that was um, a track that you did with Chris Thomas, who became very famous as um, an engineer for the Beatles, but obviously a, a producer in his own right for many artists. That's true. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't think he was engineer for the Beatles. I mean, he he started out as a kind of... Um, George, George Martin took him on as a kind of apprentice, they called him in those days to make tea and stuff. So I think Jeff Emmerich was the engineer. What he told me anyhow was that once he, once I found out by accident, uh, he was just sitting around watching, I think, for the first year. And somewhere along the way, that or something, um, 
because they were coming, kids were coming in in twos, or and maybe only one would come in and do some work, or and they needed somebody to play a harpsichord or a keyboard, and there was nobody around, and he hadn't told anybody that he was a good keyboard player, and he kind of put his hand up and volunteered, and uh, he ended up taking a couple of tracks on the White Album, and then from that point onwards, like uh, I think he went up in everybody's estimation there. He started his own right then later as a producer. Chicago Climax Blues Band, I think, was his first. He and I were, were quite close because we had a band in West Ely, uh, a band I put together called The Second Thoughts, R&B, uh, Rhythm and Blues. Gone in period in detail in my book, the Psychedelic Days. Chris uh, and I, we were, he was in a space where he was doing nothing, and uh, I from Germany and Sweden. He hadn't, done, he hadn't come on the second trip to Hamburg. He and I hooked up again, and we had a couple of reboxes, and we started writing a few songs. We took them to Casimir Publishing in Denmark Street, London. A uh, guy signed us up there for a couple of songs. We made a few deaths, which was a normal thing to do in region sound in those days. Uh, they paid for them, published them. Somebody there then said, oh, I like that song, Finding It Rough. We want to put it out. Can you make up a name for yourselves? So we didn't, but they made it. They called us Hat and Tie. They bought Chris a hat and they bought me a tie. And a few pictures were taken for the NME looking like crazies. And I think like it's on the president label on psychedelic compilations and things. But the most interesting thing that happened was that a year and a half later, I had a good friend who was a guitar salesman in Jim Marsh Music Store in Hanwell, West London. Uh, his name was Terry Slater, guitar and a lot of bands as well. But he was in a band supporting the Everly Brothers. They did a tour in England. And they liked him so much, they brought him back to Nashville to live. He was heavily involved with them, playing guitar for them on tours and doing a bit of production. I sent him a song, because he always said to me, just keep in touch and let me know what, how you're doing. And about a year later, he called me back and he said, uh, I want to tell you the Everly Brothers have recorded your song. So I thought, I thought well, now, do I leave the music business now or do I continue? Because my heroes were the Emily Brothers when I was a kid. I used to spend all my pocket money playing their records on a jukebox in Southern Ireland in a town near Waterford called Tramore. And um, I used to do three-part harmonies with, with them, you know, by the jukebox. Yeah, it, it was special. They did this kind of, um, I don't know, quite left-field type of album called Bowling Green. They covered... Quite a shade of pale yeah. on there, and a couple of songs by Graham Goulman. So, yeah, finding it rough, um, an interesting song. Now 
Ty, you then sort of formed Nirvana, and I'd like to play Tiny Goddess, which I think is one of your early singles. How did you come to to get with Alex and, and form Nirvana and start recording? Well, I met Alex uh, at that time after I finished with Kazna. Chris Summers by then had started work at EMI as, as apprentice, and I was um, hanging out at Kazna Music a bit and a place called the Giaconda in Denmark Street. Well, that's where all the songwriters went, all the publishers were there, all the bands used to hang out there. So I got to know people like Noel Redding quite well. He was doing demos. Mitch Mitchell used to come up there doing drum session, uh, dr- sessions on the drums. I met Alex Baropoulos and a guy called Ray Singer there one day. They had a collaboration going, writing songs. Alex was at the film school in St. Martin's, and they were, they were music together for a little film he had made. And he and I just uh, started to talk in the Gioconda, and uh, it was an instant uh, kind of connection rapport. It ended up with me not writing with Chris Thomas anymore and me not writing with Ray Singer. Okay, Ray Singer did hang out for a bit with us at the beginning and he he was involved on in the writing of um, Chinese Goddess a little bit or in you know, the writing arrangement, etc. Alex and I moved forward together and we just sat down and we were we just hit a purple patch very quickly. We just everything was right, you know. We knew that what we were writing was pretty good. We had no problems about um, putting big effort into it. We wrote, I think, five, six songs. Tiny Goddess, Pentecost Hotel, Rainbow Chaser, I Believe in Magic, All of Us. Or another one called um, Busy Man. So out of those, um, we did, we demoed them uh, ourselves at home. The Rebox machine was a good demo machine in those days. Got a bit of an echo, a Vincent Echo unit and just play something, play some drum things on a box or something. Bit of experimentation with the tapes and looping and stuff. And uh, we decided we'd go and see the name people at the time. So we tried to make an appointment to see George Martin and we, Ron Richards, who was producing the Hollies, John Burgess, who I think was producing Manfred Mann, and Muff Winwood, who was working at Island Records former bass player with Spencer Davis. Now, I had met him at a gig where we had supported Spencer Davis as the Second Thoughts. And he had said to me, oh, well, you know, like your band, here's my card, I'm going to be leaving Spencer Davis, I'm going to be working for a new label. 
call me if you yeah if you need any help or whatever. Yeah, it must have been a year later. I located that car somewhere. And I called Muff. He said, yeah, come in. And we got there into Oxford Street. Chris Backwood was there. Jimmy Miller was there. And, uh, and Muff himself. And we played him a couple of demos. We played it live and sang a couple of the songs as well. And they said, we want to sing you. Three, three, three album deal, three years. We were in the studio like four days later with Jimmy Miller and Chris. We found our home. We didn't even bother to contact the other guys. We took the first deal we were offered and never regretted it.
terms of being prolific, there was a range of different artists, too many to, to, to play on this podcast, who recorded your songs. Um, but I did want to sort of choose a few sort of artists who've covered songs. I think the next couple are, uh, are songs originally on the story of Simon Simapath album. The first track I'd like to play, which is a cover, is uh, a version of Wings of Love by Herman's Hermits. And um, the Herman's Hermits stuff generally is a bit of a mixed bag. This is quite a big production, so it's a good version. Yes. Well, just going back a little bit there to what you were saying about uh, the prolific period, all those covers happened because of that prolific period. The fact that we were in that hotbed of creativity... Well, we were all trying to outdo each other. So you'd be frightened to play something if it was inferior. You knew it had to be good. But going back to uh, Herman's Hermits, the the reason that happened was in the same building, uh, above on the next floor, Mickey Morse had his offices. And he was sharing the offices with Peter Grant. And Mickey Morse is the producer of the time, I suppose, for pop hits. We met Mickey by accident in the building, and he's, he was very serious kind of character, and he loved writers, he loved demos. He had no time for anything else, just he had a desk and it was piled high with songs. And they, he had his own artists up there, you see. So if you went up there, you were likely to see Donovan sitting on the floor there, or uh, Jeff Beckett hanging out in his leathers. It's a pretty wild place. But anyhow, we were going to have a single, Rainbow Chaser and Girl in the Park. And we went up to see Mickey one evening late, the end of the day upstairs and we said can we play your our new single so we played him that was Chris Blackwell that said Rainbow, uh, Girl in the Park beside Rainbow Chaser so I played him to Mickey and he said go down and tell Chris split them he said your A side is Rainbow Chaser Girl in the Park is your B side so okay he said, uh, he said have you anything else to play me he said yeah we have a new song called Beings of Love he said oh play it to me he loved it he said um do you mind if I cut it on Thursday? Oh, this was on Monday. He said, no, no. He said, he said, you come down to Delay in the studios about four o'clock on Thursday afternoon and you'll hear it. So we went down to Delay in Lee and it was Herman's Hermits he was cutting it with. He was doing it like that because I think that night Herman's Hermits were flying off to New York for a TV show because I already had a couple of hits. It's the only time I've ever met Alan Klein because he was sitting there in the studio in a big chair with a cigar he said nothing to us. He said nothing to anybody else. I think he was managing them or their agent at the time. I think Mickey, the way he worked, Mickey most was that he would do the, the backing tracks in the morning in three hours with session musicians. Herman's Hermes were not on the track. Maybe they overdubbed the guitar or two or something, but they were there. He would do the vocals in the afternoon, three or four hours, and he'd mix it in the evening. He had a track every day. Swallow in the sky Every to entice you with a bargain I will give you all my sweets A comic book, a clock that sings If you will let me have your lovely rings Little aeroplane above the clouds I will shoot you down with gun and bow and arrow So come down to my front lawn Right away with all your things 
a direct connection between Herman's Hermit's Wings of Love and, and Rainbow Chaser. And of course, Rainbow Chaser was a massive hit for you. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. In that one hour session we had with him, he picked our A-side and he covered the wings of half. <laughs> we never got anything else again with him. I mean, we tried numerous times, but the competition was too tough. We had other covers, of course. We Can Help You was covered by Alan Bound. So they, they got into the top 30, I think, with that. And it was a theme song on ITV for the name and Andrews show, if I remember. And then just when they were ready, I think uh, they were expecting it to go into the top 20. There was a, a factory vinyl strike at EMI. And uh, I think they were, they were hit by that and got lost. But yeah, I, I like that because um, I sang our track pretty okay. But uh, Jesse Rosen sang We Can Help You really well. I mean... I always liked just Rodin's voice on that song. If you're sitting on your own and you have no one to talk to, why not live to telephone? Dial our number and you'll see we have found a way to make lots of other people happy. We can do the same for you, happiness society. to mention who you've got a strong connection with uh, and I think you, you, you write about him in your book Psychedelic Days and it's Jimmy Cliff I'd like to play Waterfall Yes Jimmy Cliff and I were, were very close for a good while he, Chris had brought him over from Jamaica with Jackie Edwards Jackie Edwards did well because he had written two hits for Spencer Davis I Keep On Running I think and Somebody Help Me but Jimmy was on the fringes he couldn't because Chris Blackwell was changing from that whole Jamaican sound to try and get in on the English music scene. Chris started with Millie, and the money he made from Millie, then he started spending on people like us, because he wanted to have a, a big label. 
So Jimmy Cliff was kind of lost. It's very strange, but Jimmy Cliff wrote a song about that called, I think it's called Living in Limbo or something like that. He was, he was singing with a band, I think, called Herb Boynes, I think, for a while in some of the clubs in London. And he was asking Chris, oh, can you get this together for me? Can you get... And Chris was too busy with all the English band guys. And I think Jimmy was about to leave and go back to Jamaica. But he, I think he went back to see his family. He had sung a demo of a song called Waterfall for Alex and I. He would, he would do demos. He was up-tempo songs. He had, you know, as you know, he's got a great, very good singer, too. And he did his up-tempo track for us. And then, and then I didn't see him for maybe four or five months. I think he went back. And then one of the PAs at Ireland, uh, Elsa, sent the song to the Rio de Janeiro Song Festival. And like, they got back very quickly and said, we love it. Could Jimmy represent Jamaica singing that song at the Brazil Rio Song Festival? So they contacted Jimmy, and he was on the next airplane. Uh, I got, a, I got a, a ticket as a writer. I think Alex got a ticket, but he wasn't able to accept it because he had to go back to Greece or something. So I met up with Jimmy. Yeah, it was the beginning of his career because what happened was he was voted best artist of the festival, best performer. He didn't win it. Uh, the Righteous Brothers won the song festival with a song by Paul Anka, I think. Francois Hardy came second in it. And I knew of her because she had recorded Tiny Goddess in French and Italian and English. I think England were represented by Anita something. I can't remember her name. Anita Harris. That's right. Um, Tiny Harris, when it was over, because Jimmy had got this award as the best performer, he started doing a bunch of TV things in Rio and San Paolo. And um, he said to me, I'll I'll, I'll go back. I'll, I'll come back to England, but I'll go via Jamaica. And in Jamaica, he met Cat Stevens, and Cat Stevens gave him Wild World. And of course, that was, that's where Jimmy began. But what most people didn't know was that Jimmy had been writing all the time. And I had, I'd, been, I'd been sharing a hotel room with him in Rio de Janeiro, and he played me some of these songs that now are standards. He had, he had, he had them, like Many Rivers to Cross. He had Living in Limbo, a couple of others. They were done. He had him in his bag. Another sun to shine, another place of mine. If I could have my way, I'd stay forever. Look at the waterfall, see how the shadows crawl. If you believe in me, we'll stay together.
some place of mine If I could have my way I'd stay forever Look at the waterfall See how the shortest crawl If you believe in me We'll stay together The next song is uh, is one of your own. It's uh, I think it was a single. It's Oh What a Performance. It, it seems um, much more of a sort of an upbeat and fun track. Yeah, I mean, occasionally Alex and I did come up with a bit of a, a, a as you say, up-tempo or more of a rocker, and that's one of them. We, we had the riff, which is a strong riff on, on the keyboard, and we kind of developed it from there. They liked it at Ireland. We wanted a Hammond organ on it. Again, because of that family of musicians that were hanging out there. I mean, Alex is a, is a good piano player, but he's not as good a piano player as somebody like... There was a guy there at the time called Winder K. Frog. His real name is Mick Weaver. He had an album on Ireland as well, and he was a fantastic piano player. Also, the Hammond organ on it, and of course, Gary Wright from Spooky Tooth was hanging out there. So that track is uh, both of them playing the keyboards with Alex. There's three keyboard tracks on there. I think that's one of the songs that it doesn't seem to get airplay that much. I feel it has potential. The, the publishers of Ireland, who are Blue Mountain, they're putting together a compilation of the best songs in the Blue Mountain catalogue. And they're going to have uh, one song from each of those artists that were on that pink label at that time. Just Island Pink, 60, 67, or 68 to 72, 73. And strangely enough, the song that they picked for Nirvana was over the performance. So it's strange that you didn't mention that today because I only heard about that two or three weeks ago. Yeah. 
back to sort of 1969 1970 there seemed to be a bit of sort of a, a change of wind at island records and you left and um I, i'd like to play a song called the world is cold without you which is just a marvelous song from the dedicated to marcos free black flower album which kind of crept out unofficially on pie i believe yeah it, it crept out unofficially describes it well that's why it's so collectible today i think um people pay some big money for original copies of that you know a couple of thousand i think but there's only been, I think there was only about a 500 of them. That's the original album. It didn't come out on Ireland. It was the reason that we kind of, um, we didn't fall out with Chris. We just had a, a kind, gentle divorce. Shall we put it that way? The reason being that we recorded our album with a big orchestra. And again, The World Is Called Without You is very typical of what a big orchestra is. I mean, I'd say maybe there's, it could be 45 people playing on the back, on the, on the, on, in, on the music there. We did it in Olympic Studios. Arranger was Johnny Scott. When Chris heard the finished album, he said, hmm. He said, it sounds like the music on, from the movie A Man and a Woman. Now, as it happened, Man and a Woman was a big film that came out of France. When Chris said that, I was very happy because um, I loved the soundtrack of that movie. So uh, I, I thought, oh, okay. If you don't see it, you know, maybe he didn't see it because he didn't think it was the right sound for Ireland. I think that's what was the problem. We agreed that we have a separation, and we went our way, and he gave us the album back. And when we got a deal, uh, he was paid some money. The album ended up coming, was going to be on, a, on a, a label called Metro Media in America, in Los Angeles. It went bankrupt. There were some of the people who were involved in the big payola scandal of the time. Uh, where people were paying to get on radio and stuff. So brought down the, they had a radio station with a label, Metro Media Radio, Metro Media Records. And um, the whole thing came tumbling down, which included our album. But before it happened, they had done a deal with Pi Records in England, and they had shipped about 500 copies. And it was, that's when you say it was unofficially released. So in a way, those unofficially released copies, 500 promo copies. Yeah, Alex and I are very proud of it. Um, I, I agree with Chris. It did get too lush. It did get very arranged. But some of, the, some of the songs on there are my favorite Nirvana songs. And the one you want to play is one of my favorites, for sure. No need for you to cry 
Well, that was our trademark in a way, in a way, but earlier in, in this conversation we're having now for the podcast, I did say to you that I, when it's, when it's finished there, I was happy to, when I was at uh, Vertigo Phillips, to take, a, to take a different look at these songs and work a different way, hence Pentecost Hotel. And, but I, I didn't, uh, I would never have done that to any of the songs on Black Flower, or as some people call it, to Marcus the Third because it's too precious. It stands, it stands on its own in every way. The only thing that people didn't see with that album is that it had a different cover at the beginning, which we had sourced ourselves, which had a, a long hand of a, a beautiful long arm of a woman, black woman, coming out of the ocean, and she was holding a, a light that was lit, and uh, that was the black flower. And when Chris saw it, he said, no, I don't like it. We have to redesign it. So it ended up as something else, some kind of... It's an interesting cover, but it's not the cover that was on there. Um, I don't know, over that 18-month uh, period, I did those... Um, I did a couple of singles, produced some other artists. Yeah, Dr. Z is one of the highly collectible albums as well that came out of that Vertigo situation. It's called Three Parts to the Soul. And... Um, I did these couple of albums, Local Anesthetic and Songs of Love and Praise. Uh, Saddest Day of My Life uh, was one of the singles, so I can understand why they're using it as a, a bonus track now. But um, it's not a song that I have good memories about because I was going through a bit of a difficult time personally at the time. If you're a songwriter and you're kind of true to yourself, then if something comes and it's sourced from um, bad days, maybe sometimes writers or scrap those things, but I always went with what I felt, even if it was 
because it, uh, um, love songs love songs are always quite ambiguous anyhow because love is ambiguous you know happy days in many later you know you always pay for happy days somehow later on in, in everything that's how life is so the saddest day of my life is about something that was once happy and wasn't happy anymore and I had to get over it and a couple of songs came out of it
there's a song called Please Believe Me uh, on Songs of Love and Praise. And there's like many things in, 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 in my songwriting time, and Alex, and, and of course many writers, a lot of them songs are, 90% of the songs are about women and love stories, indirectly in that way, or about relationships with women. I always remember something that Elliot Smith said. He said something that a lot of his songs also were about women, and like there were women who were either behind bars, like in a prison trying to get out, or there were women who were in between bars as drinking establishments, going from one to the other, or there were women who were in the bars of the song. Uh, I, I remember that, um, please believe me, I'm very happy with the way it was recorded. I thought I, I got a really good sound on my voice, and I got a really good sound on the piano and the strings. That's a memory I have of it. to move towards the uh, late late 70s a song that i believe is a single again released under the nirvana 
her name and that's Love Is. Was that recorded as a duo or was that just yourself? It's, it's a very strong song. Uh, I wrote that song by myself. It was at a period of time where somebody had offered me the chance to write some singles and I kind of uh, I quite enjoyed that for a while. You know, were used on TV and things. People were known in many ways that I did that because Kindle writers don't get credits. But um, surprisingly, they get paid very good money, I, I, I realized. I was in the right place at the right time. Somebody said to me, don't you try something? I tried it. It was used. I did a few more over a period of a few months, and I did a bunch of them over about a year. But then it felt like it was getting too much like uh, being on a factory floor because, like, these people, they call you at, like, 7 o'clock in the evening and say, could you have it for 12 o'clock tomorrow? The music was always the last thing they, they put on their film. And they were, you know, rushing around like crazy. So I just couldn't deal with that or handle it, you know, and eventually kind of drifted away from it. But during that period, I met a, a guy who was working in that field, and he also had a production deal with uh, United Artists. And I had played him the song by accident. He fell in love with it. And um, he said, oh, he said, I'll, uh, I'll produce that, and I'll get a chunk of money from United Artists to do it. So I said, okay. And this was about when video was coming in, I think, as well. Maybe it was a bit before MTV, or maybe MTV had come in or not. Anyway, he got it to do it. He got another chunk of money to do this crazy, surreal video that, like, is totally wild if you look at it on YouTube. I think we just put in Love is Nirvana YouTube. I'm not even singing on it. He got another singer to do it. I'm actually in the film mining violin. It was a crazy day, believe me. And I had a good chunk of the video money uh, went up people's noses and um, in many other uh, areas, yeah? Uh, it, was, uh, it was a one-off. It's a good song, but that was my only ever record on United Artists. I only ever association with them as well.
I'd like to take us a bit more up to date. We're sort of getting more and more sort of to the present. I think this track was from the early nineties, but I'm sure you'll sort of correct me. And it, I think it was a bonus track from the re reissue of um, Black Flower. Again, it's a song that you did with Alex. It's uh, Shine. It's that's, that's a lovely song of yours. Oh yes, you're right. It's, it was on a reissue um, as a bonus track. A- Alex and I, over the years, have always been in touch. You know, you're calling me here for this podcast in Athens, Greece, where I live. And Alex lives about 45 minutes from me in the city. Uh, I live outside the city. We still write together. Uh, we're in touch all the time. Just like even recently we threw these very red things, and I believe Universal are going to reissue stuff this year as well. This is like a 50th anniversary of our stuff. Shine would have been a typical song where I would meet him. It wasn't written here in Greece. It was written in London. He was living in Archway at the time. He, at that time, was living in Spain. But I came to stay with him for a while in Archway. When we met, you know, we'd have a, a good time. We'd go to a restaurant, have something to eat, have a laugh. But we always ended up saying, oh, should we try writing something? Shine came out of something like that. You know, sat for an evening. Next day, came back to something. And by that next evening, we had the song. As in lyrics. And then because Alex had a facility in his flat, a good little um, home recording unit, we could always record it quickly. And we recorded it then maybe, I think, over a period of two days. And what you hear on that bonus track is out of his studio in his flat in Archway. Uh, it's a special song. It's very simple. I like every song I've written with Alex. I mean, there's a few we did, very few actually, that we did, that we, um, that we tossed away. Maybe. We never tossed the song away, but we said, well, let's put that on the back burner for a while, leave it, and we might not have come back to it and forgot about it. But almost every song we wrote has come out somewhere, you know, even a song like that. Somebody wants a bonus track. Somebody says, have you got... Like, for instance, now, Verse are going to put out these Island albums again, even some kind of format, and they were asking about um, any bonus tracks. So we said, yeah, we have one, and... Called Taxi, and maybe just after our it's '69 into '70, written one day in the bush where I was living in Acton, um, Alex was living in Shepherd's Bush. We go between our places, and um, we wrote a song called Taxi. It's a uh, it's, it sounds like a, a good Eurovision song, but it's got a Nirvana it's got a Nirvana feel to it, you know. So it's not Eurovision y la la la. It's eurovision catchy, a good European song, a song called Taxi. And uh, nobody's ever heard it before. So 50 years later, we, we give it a life. Brightness will shine 
I can mention here, I hope, my new solo album that I'm coming out now this July called You're a Cloud, I'm a Comet. Again, this is something I've done by myself. I worked with a Greek producer called Costa Sturgio and just a couple of Greek, very nice people, good musicians who have a good feel for psychedelic. Some of them are in a few good psychedelic bands, have a good trumpet player. I think there's 11 songs on there and I think they're as good as I've ever written. It's going to be on the Market Square label, maybe a thousand limited edition vinyl and CD release. I've got a couple of really standout tracks on it. I think it's well up to my uh, standard of writing and production that I had in the early days with Ireland. I gave it a lot of time. I worked on it very slowly over a period of about two years. Please God, I hope it, um, it, it, it will, um, some people will like it and uh, connect to it. The title track is very good. On a summer's day in the big rain, take off your clothes and smile again. When the night comes into view. Stars, they will be few. You're a cloud and I'm a comet. Just make sure you're riding on it. 
So you mentioned about standout tracks and um, and obviously what song off You're a Cloud and a Comet would you like to close with, Patrick? There's a very, very uh, interesting song I've written about transgender, which is called Different Day. Great. Yeah, thank you so much for your time. Yeah, it's a real pleasure to talk to you again. Yeah, good to catch up with you again and um, take care. For the love of a woman, I killed the life of a man I used to be Simon, now my name is Joanne There's no going back there, I'm free to be me I am who I am, I'm who I wanted to be
I'm giving 